The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Grab your Bibles and go ahead and open them up to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles from the pew in front of you, it's on page 533. I looked this morning, so you don't have to flip around and find it. It's right there. Proverbs chapter 9. Last week, we covered the the important parts of the beginning of Proverbs chapter 1, which is kind of the beginning of the introductory material to the book of Proverbs. The, The first nine chapters are really there to help entice our hearts to listen to what's being said throughout the rest of the book. And the ninth chapter is the final piece of that introductory material. So we got a little bit from the first. Now we're going to spend our time in the last little bit of that material. And as I read the Bible, I I often try to see what I'm reading kind of play out in my mind. And again, it's, it's, it's a fairly unsanctified imagination. God's still working on it. So what I see and how it plays out doesn't necessarily mean how it actually went, you know. But as I read Proverbs chapter 9, I tried to see it play out. And I thought to myself, the great little slice of life and drama that we get in Proverbs chapter 9, if we were going to turn it into like a modern film adaptation, it would have to be done by the late, great John Hughes. If any of you are fans of John Hughes films, and I might be dating myself on that one, he of Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles fame, the one who people, at least in in my age bracket, felt could capture a moment in the slice and tension of life as an adolescent like few other people. I read Proverbs chapter 9 and all I could see was this great scene happening in the middle of a high school cafeteria, right? You've got your, your main character who transferred into the school that year who was pretty new. He had been spending the year kind of getting to know all the different people in the school, going through the highs and lows of social life in high school. And spring comes and a day comes and he's going through the lunch line like normal and he's exiting that line and he's about to make his way to the table where he spent the entire year at lunchtime with all of the people who ended up at the strange table in the corner, right? There's that corner table in the high school cafeteria full of all of the oddities that existed in high school at that time, right? And he's made his way to that table because of all people, they were the ones that accepted him. He was new. He wasn't quite as strange and quirky as the rest of them, but they accepted him and he had a seat with them and he always knew where he would go. And on this day, he leaves that high school cafeteria line with his tray, he steps out into the room and right as he's about to head to the table, in the corner of his eye, he, he sees the table, You remember the table in high school cafeterias? The table full of all of the people that everybody wanted to sit with, be with, be associated with, have a spot with, but there was never a chair at for that table. That table gave him the wave over. And there he is. I mean, it's straight out of Pretty in Pink. There he is standing there holding his, straight out of my life, really, if I'm going to be really honest, holding his cafeteria tray frozen. Where are you going to go? Who are you going to sit with? And in a moment for a 16-year-old in that moment, it literally feels like life or death. I mean, it's the biggest decision you're probably going to make up to that point because it's not just lunch, right? It's more than lunch. 
It's who are you choosing to identify with? Who are you choosing to associate with? Who are you choosing to enter into a type of relationship with? Who are you choosing to be influenced by and spend your time with? You were making a decision, and it was huge. And you couldn't just stand there like, you know, no, it's not about me. It's a different movie. Like, you just stand there, and you just wish that you didn't see what you saw. And you can't just stand there frozen with the tray. You've got to make a decision. You're going to eat with one group or another. Proverbs chapter 9, it, it, it's not about lunch in a high school cafeteria, right? The stakes actually are, are a whole lot higher. It felt like life and death when you were 16, but Proverbs chapter 9 is talking about life and death. And it presents to us a drama of an invitation to a life-shaping, action-defining relationship that will prove to be for us a matter of life and death. So if you've got it open, let's read it together and then let's consider the pieces and the parts of this drama and what God may have to say to us through it. Proverbs chapter 9 begins this way. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Who is it going to be? Who are you going to eat with? Wisdom or folly? Like any good story, and this is a good one in Proverbs chapter 9, we, we've got all the primary ingredients. We've got the main characters. We've got the setting. We've got the tension that's been introduced into the story. And we have a path towards a resolution. 
But as we'll see, we don't quite see the resolution that one of the characters is going to discover because that's where you and I come into the story. So let's take our time and just consider the different elements of this drama that are here and what we can learn from them. The first thing you've got to do in any good story is you've got to determine who the main characters are. And and they're pretty clear for us here in Proverbs chapter 9. The first one that we meet is Lady Wisdom. In fact, this whole chapter is, is broken up into three parts, three paragraphs. Each paragraph has six verses in it. And the first paragraph, the first six verses, are, are focused on Lady Wisdom. Now, if you've spent any time in the book of Proverbs, maybe some of you since last week or in the coming weeks, you'll begin to read through this material again. Throughout the first eight chapters, and then in particular in a concentrated form in chapter eight, we've met Lady Wisdom in the introductory material already. And what we discover about Lady Wisdom getting us to Proverbs chapter 9 is that she's a bold woman. In fact, in chapter 1, we didn't read it last week, we learned that Lady Wisdom cries out in the streets and in the marketplace. She raises her voice at the head of all the noisy streets. And in chapter 8, we learn that she's shouting from the hilltop near the crossroads of all the main roads in town. She's a bold woman. She's not shy. She's not afraid. She's fearless. She she is where people are. And she has something to say. And not just that, we we know other things about her from the introductory material. I love the way that Trimper Longman puts it in his commentary. He says, we know people by the company they keep and the people they avoid. And as you read through this material, especially in chapter 8, if you read through it this week, you find, he says, that wisdom is closely associated with righteousness, truth, wholesome behavior, good judgment, common sense, insight, and strength. On the other hand, she tells you that she stays as far away from possible as possible from deception, pride, and arrogance. We're starting to get a composite picture of this lady wisdom. But in the closing verses of chapter 8, and I would encourage you to go back and read it at some point this week, there's something curious that we learn in particular about her. And this is what we learn. It's in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 27 through 31. It says this, when he established the heavens, I was there. I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. As the drama begins to narrow in, the lens begins to narrow in on Lady Wisdom, now in the beginning of chapter 9, we learn that she has strategically and skillfully built her house She's hewn the seven pillars that support her house. She has carved them out herself. She's slaughtered the beasts, the preparation for the feast that she's preparing. She's mixed her wine. She's made it increasingly pleasant. That mixing of wine is is an act that we would do back in those days where you would add spices or even honey to the mixtures of the wine to make it more pleasant. She's mixed her wine and she's set her table. Not only is she a bold and fearless woman, she's quite impressive. 
From the hewning of the pillars that support the foundation of her house to skillfully building it and now preparing all the details necessary for the feast that she's holding out, she's done it. And she's done it with an eye towards those that she's inviting in. She's done it for her guests. She's thought ahead about them and preparing for them. And now in verse 3, we see she sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. She sent them out with an invitation. And and we'll look more specifically at her invitation in just a few minutes. But what we can see, even from these first couple of verses now, is a deep love for people that Lady Wisdom has. A deep love and consideration of the well-being and the flourishing of others that's seen in her decisions and in her actions. There's something else we learn about her, though, here as well in verse 3, where it says that she sent out her young women to call. Here's the setting, though, from the highest places in the town. This is where she's built her house, in the highest places in the town. Some of your translations will translate that in the heights overlooking the city. And that's really important for not only understanding Lady Wisdom, and we'll see one of her counterparts here in a minute, but it's really important for understanding what's actually being presented to us in this drama, in this story. In those days, there was only one house that was ever built on the highest points of a city. Only one thing was built at the heights overlooking all the city. That was the temples or the areas of worship. It was on the highest point, Mount Zion, that God instructed his people to build his temple, where he would dwell in the midst of his people. It was on the highest points of a city that altars were established. What we're learning as we read this is something important about Lady Wisdom. And it helps to remember as we read this chapter and as we read really the entire book in the weeks to come, this is poetic literature. This isn't a narrative history. This is poetic. And the portrait that Solomon is painting here in Proverbs chapter 9 is a picture that's meant to help us see that Lady Wisdom is a poetic personification of God's wisdom. She is a personification of the wisdom of God himself, the one who dwells in the highest place in the city. You see, just like in the Old Testament, we we learn that For his people, God is a shepherd. He is a warrior. He is a father. He is even a spouse. We can't reduce God down to any one of those things. But each of those personifications are a piece and part of his nature and character and who he is for his people. And so what we're told here, even in the setting of this story and in the way that Lady Wisdom is described, is that in the end, He is the one we're meant to have in mind when we read about her. She is a poetic personification of his wisdom. But she's not the only character. There's another character, and starting in verse 13, we meet Lady Folly. And we learn a little bit about Lady Folly. We don't have as much about her in the other chapters of the introductory material as we do Lady Wisdom. This is really the most condensed picture we have of her Lady Folly is loud. She's seductive. She knows nothing. I I actually appreciate the way the New Living Translation translates this verse 
the best. They translate it this way. She is brash, ignorant, and doesn't even know it. Brash, by dictionary definition, means self-assertive in a rude, noisy, and overbearing way. She's brash. She's loud. And she can't even see it about herself. She sticks her nose in places it doesn't belong. And she does it rudely and aggressively and loudly and doesn't have a clue of what she's talking about. Well, wisdom... Well, Lady Wisdom has been hard at work in preparing for those that she's inviting to dine with her. From the hewning of the foundations of her house, the preparation of this feast, Lady Folly has been sitting down by her door. She hasn't slaughtered the animals. She hasn't mixed the wine. Rather, she offers stolen water. And bread. She sits at the door of her house, verse 14 says. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. So here we are, the setting's still the same. Her house is up there as well. You see, Lady Folly is the poetic personification of all of the false gods of the nations that were constantly tempting God's people away from Him and Him alone. All of the gods of Canaan and Babylon and all the nations of the land that were constantly tempting the satisfaction and delight and the allegiance of the hearts of God's people away from him and him alone to him and maybe them too. I like what they have to offer. Lady Folly is literally the sirens that we were talking about weeks ago. Promising a life apart from God and God alone. And she is sit there crying out as well. And we'll look at her message in a minute too. But there's one more character in the story, and that's the traveler. In verse 4, wisdom speaks to the traveler saying this, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she cries out. And same thing with Lady Folly though. In verse 15, she's calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. So these are those in the metaphorical picture of biblical language who are on their path or on their way, who are living their life step by step, day by day, living life in this world. And she calls out whoever's simple. Let him turn here. To him who lacks sense, she cries out. And so we see that both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly are crying out for the same audience. They're calling out for the same ears. The simple, the shapeable, the moldable, the influenceable. They're calling out for their attention. And here's the thing, as we read Proverbs chapter 9 in the literature that it is, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are those that Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom are crying out to. We are their intended audience. This is us. We're the ones easily influenced, easily shaped, easily molded, tempted and capable of extreme wandering. 
Each and every single day, moment by moment, decision by decision, we are taking steps on our way in our manner of living. And both wisdom and folly are calling out for our attention. Calling out to influence. It's more than that. It's a little deeper than that. And it comes when you consider the message that they're actually saying. Wisdom says, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Folly says something that sounds pretty similar too. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet though. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. See, in the drama, they're both inviting the traveler along his way into their house for a meal. They're both inviting him standing there with his tray coming out of the line to their table to eat. But in this day, we've got to understand again, much like understanding who lived on the highest places in the city, we've got to understand that the invitation to cross the threshold into her house to sit down and eat of a feast that she's prepared, food that she's prepared, is far more than just a meal. This is an invitation to intimacy. It's an invitation to connection. It's an invitation to a relationship. And this is what both ladies are calling out for. Wisdom and folly are both looking for that relationship, that influence. Folly, and she's seductive, isn't she? She's enticing. And there's something about what she holds out that sounds good. One commentator was writing about this in the book of Proverbs, and he said, folly is always parasitic of the good that God has made. Folly takes the goods of God and destroys their goodness by ripping them from their proper place. Folly is a counterfeiter. She's offering a counterfeit promise, offering a counterfeit feast. She's offering a promise that can't deliver. She holds out a life that she can't satisfy. And she does everything she can to make it sound appealing and make it sound attractive. Stolen water is sweet. It's good. This is the way the gods of the day operated. Baal, Asherah, they promised a life. A life of flourishing, a life of fertility, a life of well-being. Coming to them, sacrificing to them, honoring them, worshiping them would bring this to people's lives and they made it sound good. Many of God's people turned their affections and turned their attention to them. They rationalized the appeal. Like every step they took along the way to get closer and closer to crossing the threshold of those temples, they could rationalize in their mind. It made sense to them. They could tell themselves that it was the right thing to do. And over and over again, we read in the story that God's people, time and time again, would swerve from life with him, devoted to him and him alone, to what sounded good and appealing to their desires. 
what sounded good and appealing to the kind of life they wanted that was being held out by the gods of the nations. And just like them, we rationalize the same steps in our own life, one after the other, till we get to the door of the threshold of folly itself. We saw it in the season of Lent when we went through this. All the sirens make it sound so good. Sounds so appealing. Sounds so attractive. And sounds so compatible with life lived in the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. Folly never reveals her true nature. She never says that entering into the doorway of her house, crossing her threshold to dine with her, doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. The traveler thinking that they're getting life-giving food when they cross Folly's door only end up dead. That's what verse 18 tells us. He doesn't know the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, Like the sirens of Greek mythology, she leads those sailors straight into shipwreck and doesn't let them know. It only sounds good. You can have what tastes good. You can have what tastes sweet. You can have what feels so pleasant that you desperately want, but I'm not going to tell you it's going to lead to your death. Wisdom, on the other hand, brings life. Dining with folly only leads to death. Dining with wisdom brings life. Verse 11, she says, For by me your days will be multiplied. Your years will be added to your life. Earlier in the introductory pieces in in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon, speaking to his son, speaks of Lady Wisdom and says, She offers you long life in her right hand, honor in her left. She will guide you down delightful paths. All her ways are satisfying. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Happy are those who hold tightly to her. He didn't say crossing wisdom's threshold would be easier. He didn't say life, embracing lady wisdom in a relationship with her will come easier to you than folly. But he did say it's more flourishing. It's what leads to life. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Lady Wisdom has done the work. She's prepared. She's thought ahead of you, your life, your flourishing in this world. And she invites you to her feast. But there's a cost. It's in there in verse 6. The cost is humility. It requires humility to dine with Lady Wisdom. To know that you don't know. You see, real humility craves wisdom's definition of life. Wisdom's definition of what is good and true and beautiful. And the invitation to this life is for anyone. Anyone can get in on the life that wisdom is holding out and offering. Except the arrogant. Except the self-consumed. Except the prideful. Or as Proverbs chapter 9 will go on to describe, the scoffer. 
They're the ones who are not able to eat at Lady Wisdom's Feast. This is where the middle paragraph in the story begins to come in. The middle paragraph is a bit different than the first and the third. It, it deals more or less with how we respond to Lady Wisdom's appeal to leave our simple ways and live. It says in verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer, by definition, that word there in Hebrew is someone who is empty, pompous, self-satisfied. That's what a scoffer is. You, people scoff, or some of your translations will say mock. It's what a scoffer is. It's someone who's so self-satisfied that it scoffs at any idea contrary to their own understanding, Right? Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Here's a way that one can respond to the appeal. Scoffers are folks who don't take correction and instruction very well. Scoffers are easily offended. See, if insight or correction threatens their sense of pride, their sense of well-being, their sense of superiority, their sense of enoughness, watch out. Solomon says they'll strike back and probably make you think it's your fault. Scoffers are closed to correction because they know what's best. They know better. They know what leads to life. They know what leads to their flourishing. They know what steps to take along this path to lead to their well-being, right? Ray Ortland says in his commentary on Proverbs, in their own insecurity... Scoffers will insult you, dishonor you, and they could even physically lash out to you when you point out something in their life. Solomon says, don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Why? Humility. An openness to change. An openness to correction. Not just an openness, but an eagerness for it. See, because you can't grow if you can't see. You can't grow if you can't see the blind spots that are there because by definition they're blind spots and you can't see them. Humility wants to see. Humility marks the wise. They want to know what they don't know even about themselves. They love this correction because they know that that may be the very thing that keeps them from making the same mistake over and over again to their own peril to the own destruction of their own soul. They know that they don't know. They know that in them are not hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They know that they're not the ones who best understand what leads to life and flourishing. And it's this humility that feasts on wisdom's banquet. And it's born here, we see in verse 10, from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This takes us right back to where we were last week. The introductory chapter in the material, the closing chapter in the material. 
both center on the thesis of the book. There's a literary aim in that. Closing the introductory material is the center of it all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A reverential awe of God. Life lived with an expanding awareness of the pervasiveness of God's reign and God's rule in and over all things. And your life lived in light of him and that. It's this fear of the Lord that begins to dismantle all of our prideful, foolish, scoffing attempts to build our own life according to our own ways and our own wisdom. It's this fear of the Lord that begins to reshape and reframe how we understand not just who we are, but the life we live in this world under his reign for his glory and ultimately our deepest joy. The everyday details, the nitty-gritty street-level realities and decisions that we make in our life day by day are to be lived from this place of a reverential awe for the centrality of God. And the reality of it is our everyday decisions in life are indicators of whether or not we are living in the fear and awe of him. The problem is that sin obscures our, our view of reality. Ever since the garden, every single one of us born on this earth has been born with the eye and the view that the world revolves around us. Life revolves around us. And our life is lived out of that perspective and out of that view of what is central and what is governing and what is controlling. And that shapes the way we make every decision in our life. We're born fools. And the framework for which we understand ourselves and the world is foolish. It's like running your hand against the grain of splintery wood. It's foolish. And you're going to wind up with splinters. And that's the way most of our lives are lived. This perspective born with ourselves at the center of everything, it, it leaves us uh, approaching life asking questions like, what's in this for me? What works best for me? How can I get this? Or how can I do that? We're at the central, the governing principle and controlling reality of our life in the world. How does life revolve around me in those things? That is the opposite of life lived in the fear of the Lord in which he is the governing, central, controlling principle of all of reality, shaping and defining who we are and what reality is. I was listening to, to different pastors talk about the fear of the Lord because you're always after trying to understand how to best explain something conceptual like that and, and how does it translate itself down to very real and, and practical realities in life that help make sense of it. And I was listening to a guy you're probably familiar with. His name is David Platt. I was listening to David talk about the fear of the Lord. And he began to say this, the fear of the Lord, what we're calling that controlling principle of reality, 
It shapes the way we ask questions about our life. He said, listen to this and see if you can tell a difference. There's a difference between how can I go about making the most money possible to live my best idea of life in this world? And how can I make money in order to give generously in a world full of critical spiritual and physical need? To store up treasure in heaven where it can't be corrupted or stolen. Same context, same thing trying to be figured out, two completely perspectives on the situation. One lived revolving around me. How can I get the most out of this? One lived with a perspective and the fear of the Lord. What could be possible for his kingdom and his glory in this? Two very different things. Jeremiah 9 says, Let him who boasts, boast not in his worldly riches or fame or honor or possessions or anything else in the world. Because that sounds like Lady Folly. Loud and boisterous, talking about herself. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. That requires a shift in perspective in how we even view the world. That requires a life lived in the fear of the Lord. That enables us to begin to see reality for what it really is as God has defined it because we're now seeing it through the lens of him being the central, controlling, organizing principle of the world. The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning. That's the cornerstone. That's the foundation. That's the controlling principle of wisdom. For by me, verse 11 says, For by me, wisdom says, your days will be multiplied, your years will be added to your life. If you, now this isn't the biblical plural y'all. This is singular actually. This is making the appeal and your response to the appeal in Proverbs chapter 9 very personal. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, if you live day by day, decision by decision, moment by moment at the center of your own universe, thinking that it revolves around you and what's in it for you and you know what's best for your life in this world that God has created. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. There's a decision that has to be made. Lady Wisdom is saying, you you don't dine at my feast by someone else's decision to be in my house. You have to make a decision. What makes it hard is that each of us is born a fool. Splashing around in folly. Ever since sin shattered the reality of our hearts, we have wanted to do things our own way. We don't like to be told how to live. We intrinsically scoff at any suggestion that runs contrary to what we think we want and need. And so to choose to live in the fear of the Lord, to cross the threshold into Lady Wisdom's house and feast at her table that offers life, we need a transformation of the heart. It has to happen. Friends, that's precisely why God came after us in his son. To the woman of Proverbs 9, as we read this, and we're reminded she is the personification of God's wisdom, right? 
But when his son came in the fullness of time and took on flesh, he became for us not the personification of God's wisdom, but he is for us the fullest embodiment of the wisdom of God. In the fullness of time, God revealed to us in Jesus what Solomon couldn't have fully known and never could have imagined, that Jesus is the wisdom of God in the flesh. He is the embodiment and fulfillment of the wisdom of Proverbs in the same way that he is the embodiment, John says, of the word itself. And so as we read and we see Lady Wisdom doing the work to prepare a feast of life and calling out to weary travelers, vulnerable travelers to come, to eat, to feast and have life, Jesus, the wisdom of God, prepared a feast as well the preparations of which and the price for which he paid. He himself became the slaughtered beast and lamb of God who took away our sin so that everyone who hungers and thirsts for life can come to the house of wisdom, can come to him and eat and have life, be satisfied and truly live. Isaiah was speaking of it in Isaiah 55 when he said, listen diligent to me, diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, here, that your soul may live. Jesus has in himself everything that you need. Again, I love the way that Ray Ortland said it. He said that Jesus is the greatest expert in the entire universe on you. And he is better at building a great, flourishing life for you than you are for yourself. The Proverbs chapter 9 takes us by the hand and leads us to wisdom itself and reminds us that wisdom, it isn't a concept that we have to know, a, a concept that we have to learn. Wisdom is a person that we know. Wisdom becomes a relationship that we have. By keeping company with Jesus, we learn and we become increasingly white like him we become increasingly wise. Leave your simple ways, wisdom says. Your satisfaction with being tossed to and fro. Those simple ways, the very thing we saw weeks ago that in the end Jesus will spit out of his mouth as disgusting to him, nauseating. Listen to him, he says. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This is his invitation to a life of wisdom. It's an invitation to repentance, to recognize over and over, moment by moment, that we're so prone to self-centered foolishness. Scoffing is so resident in our heart. We so easily fall prey to the voice of the sirens that tell us what we can have and the way we want it and that we can have it and have him too. Jesus' invitation to life away from our simple and malleable and foolish ways and to life and flourishing with him is for all who would hear him and recognize 
In the end, there are only two houses, only two thresholds to cross, only two ways. Turning to Him, turning to wisdom, crossing the threshold of her door. It leads not just to a relationship with wisdom. It leads to receiving the very spirit of wisdom. The spirit of God that was present when what didn't exist came into existence. Think for a moment about the grandeur and the majesty of the created order. We learn more and more about the world and how it works and our bodies and how they work every single year. Things that absolutely blow our mind when we think of all the things that have to happen for even the most simple aspects of life to actually function. And the spirit of wisdom was there bringing into existence according to that pattern of reality and flourishing all that God had intended. Jesus says when you enter into his house and cross his threshold into relationship with him, you receive the very spirit of wisdom itself. Now, day by day, moment by moment, taking up residence in you, helping you to better discern the voice of Christ and the voice of folly. Helping you and empowering you according to his word of wisdom, how to live a life of flourishing and deepest joy in the world according to reality as God established it. He's the one who established the pattern of the world. He's the one who's taken up residence now in our hearts by faith to help us to see and empower us to step and act in accordance with the patterns of life. It's out of this relationship that you and I can begin to better discern and hear the voice of wisdom and live the life that he has designed for us decision by decision, moment by moment. So hear it one more time. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, there are two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will finally say to them, thy will be done. Leave your simple ways and live. I, wisdom says, will guide you down delightful paths. All of my ways, wisdom says, are satisfying. I am a tree of life to those who embrace me. Happy are those who hold tightly to me. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word together. Father, you, you hold before us life. You hold before us our, our deepest joy, satisfaction to our, our deepest longings and desires. Life according to the pattern of reality as you have intended or to embrace you, your son, wisdom, to live a life of wisdom. 
Lord, we need you by your Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our hearts to see you, to see Jesus' ears, to hear his voice amidst all the competing voices, all the things that that part of us, that foolish part, that scoffing part of our heart desperately wants to hold on to. Lord, we need you to do a work in our hearts for us to live a life of wisdom in relationship to your son for his glory and our joy. We want to be a people gripped by a reverential awe for you who see our life, not just in its totality, but moment by moment lived in the context of your kingdom, your world, your rule, your character. From that, know your mercy and your love that leads to our greatest joy. Lord, it's going to take a work of your spirit in our hearts to bring us to this place, to cross the threshold into your house and life. And we pray that you would do that very thing in us. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.